But for me, it's also about creating a sense of belonging for Black and Asian, especially young people, you know, from Scotland, growing up in Scotland, maybe just arrived in Scotland, to know that there's this really long history. It's a bigger conversation out with kind of a moment where you can maybe give me a wall, but it's about, you know, who's who's in your staff and who is on programming your spaces and what does your space, spaces look like year round. Well, welcome listeners to Undersong, a race and conversations otherwise. Undersong represents a commitment to amplifying the space for listening to what gets too easily buried or erased or forgotten. And in listening to the uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that shape our present, this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the making of worlds otherwise. Today's episode brings together in conversation Wesley Mahora, an artist and curator, and Lisa Williams, a historian and activist, who in different ways, I think, and in the spirit of the title of our podcast taken from Audrey Lord, help us to remember the ghosts of those who came before us and who that we carry within ourselves. So to our guests, Lisa Williams is the founder of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association and curates a range of arts events from across Scotland to promote the shared heritage between Scotland and the Caribbean, including film, literature and live music. Lisa runs a lot of educational and anti-racist programs in schools and universities and leads walking tours focusing on Edinburgh's black history. She's currently a member of advisory boards for the Victorian Albert um, in Dundee and the National Trust of Scotland, amongst others, and works as a consultant to heritage, arts, and cultural organisations across Scotland and indeed the UK. Wesley Mahura is a freelance creative producer who has initiated and developed projects with widely diverse groups of artists, organisations, and art platforms, including dance, street theatre, circus, physical theatre, digital, and musical performances. She's the founder of AfriFest, Scotland's first festival commemoration of African arts and culture, and a celebratory showcase of visual, performing arts, uh, and culture of the Scottish Pan-African community. Wesley has a passion for cross-art form, multidisciplinary collaboration, and experimenting with new forms, and she often works with unconventional outdoor and site-specific cases. So welcome both Wethy uh, and Lisa, it's great to have you here and I'm just going to um, kick off by asking you about your current work and your current projects. So, so, so Lisa, what have you been up to recently and what are you working on uh, at the moment? Hi Nessa, thanks for the welcome. Um, well for about the last three years I've been running these Black History Walks as you know, so um, really good response from general public but also the heritage organisations as well which has been really heartening. So I've been doing quite a bit of work recently helping heritage organisations recontextualise some of their exhibits. A lot of people are concerned about the language they use and that kind of thing and how to go about it. So that's what I've been focusing on quite a lot recently. And one of the things I wanted to do, and I'm really excited to be here with Wesley today as well, because some of the overlaps between, you know, her work that she's been doing and, and mine is sort of cropped up, which we can talk about. 
But one of the things that I'm excited about trying to do as well is bring youth on board and bring creators on board across disciplines as well to see how we can use this history to get to a range of audiences. Because for me, especially having one foot in the university as a fellow in the history department, it means that I realise how people often operate in these sort of academic silos and there's a real gap between the knowledge coming out of the universities and the communities who really need that knowledge as well. So what I do by trying to take this to the streets, for me, it's all sort of in the spirit of Walter Rodney in a way, you know what I mean? It's about making sure that you are um, facilitating that transfer of knowledge, but it's also a two-way thing. It's not all about academic knowledge coming out, but it's also about the knowledge that so many people have in our communities as well, which is often ignored or not really taken seriously and not respected. So making sure that that kind of two-way um, two-way exchange of knowledge is is respected in the way that it, it needs to be. Yeah, great. Thank you, Lisa. And, and Wethy, what, what have you been working on recently? Um, well, this year for me had started off quite badly with lockdown. As a freelancer, um, most of my theatre gigs, most of my kind of professional work was cancelled and disappeared out of my sight. Um, and there was a moment where um, the murder of George Floyd happened and then the world reacted to it that I was very aware um, how the protests were being seen, how the world was kind of looking at this sort of urgency of the need of the Black Lives Matter movement in a new way. And one of the things I was really keen to do was to showcase Black voices and, and Black Scottish voices in that sphere of conversation. So I'm very used to having conversation around Black Lives Matter, but the Black Lives Matter conversation tends to be skewed towards the America. And even when it comes to a British context of, about the Black experience, it was always skewed to more of a London-centric conversation. So what I did this year was I took over public buildings that were closed um, due to COVID at the time, and I created um, exhibition of black and brown artists, visual artists, that spoke to their experience of race in Scotland and that allowed the public to meet that conversation in their own sphere. So took over public buildings everywhere from Inverness down into the borders uh, and we had almost 40 exhibitions across the country and we had them up for nearly six months so from June until the last one just went came down um, a few few weeks ago so it was six months of a public conversation being held in the realm of you know in the in the sort of where you could meet it in the public streets where you could meet it as you're walking on your on your daily walks in lockdown and it was yeah that was that was my big project for this year yeah, yeah. And one thing that strikes me about the work that you have in common is that you both try to, in a way, kind of curate um, public space that is otherwise overwhelmingly white. And in not just Scotland, Edinburgh particularly, how have you kind of, um, um, kind of encountered that? Do you find resistance to telling your stories in these overwhelming white spaces or is it something which is um, welcomed and received with 
received with uh, enthusiasm? I think that there is, it's a double-edged sword. I think one of the reasons that I, when, when coming to take over public spaces for the, for the uh, Scotland Wide Mural Trail, one of the reasons that I predominantly targeted theatres and galleries and spaces like that is because they are notoriously white spaces and white middle class spaces. And it felt really important for me that even within the context of most most scenarios one of the things I think like one of the most poignant moments was when one of my artists said I've applied to work to work in this building I've applied to showcase work in this building and I've never had it and to have my voice like adorned on the walls and the ceilings and the you know the the side of this building is a massive thing for them and equally I think equally those spaces as well, as well as being white and, and um, excluding the kind of the black artist voice, I think they exclude many members of the public of all races. And I think that there's something about kind of reclaiming our public spaces and reclaiming that for not only for artists of color, but also for working class voices and also for, and it felt like that was a really important statement to be made on these, imposing buildings and then these imposing spaces that don't really open feel open or feel like a space where most most people can be it just and it comes with a double so you know the 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 institutions themselves were very kind of open to it but it's a bigger conversation out with a kind of a moment where you can maybe give me a wall but it's about you know who's who's in your staff and who is on programming your spaces and what does your space, spaces look like year round and then who's in your audience and what does that look like year round. so there's a bigger conversation to be had around it yeah and it's the way in which that moment might open up that broader conversation or or just be a moment that passes that's fleeting but in a way lisa your history walks are so incredible because they point to a certain kind of permanence about the built environment and the landscape around us that will always be there, whatever the nature of contemporary politics. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, whatever happens to our statues, I mean, that's a whole other conversation to be had. But for me, it's also about creating a sense of belonging for Black and Asian, especially young people, you know, from Scotland, growing up in Scotland, maybe just arrived in Scotland, to know that there's this really long history um, part and parcel of Scottish society from and take it right back to Roman times but if you're thinking about the built environment and also who's very often unpaid labour or forced labour paid for so many of these buildings as well it's not just that but it's also the stories of the people who lived in them so I was really excited when I got to the Writers Museum because that's halfway through my tour and to see the where's this mural shell outside there and the poet Kakuma rocks with one of her poems um, on the end, which actually referenced two of the people who I talk about at that spot anyway. So to have that behind and to have that connection was really exciting. And I made sure we read the poem. I got everyone on the tour to come and, you know, read out the poem to them. And I referenced David Spence who fighting for his rights in the court and parliament house. And we talked about Robert Wedderburn being one of those um, 
famous black Scots, who's one of those three black Scots who've been chosen to be in 100 Great Black Britons, that book that's just come out. So that was really exciting just to, to be able to have that there and to be able to read the poetry. And I also like poetry. I do quite a lot of work in secondary schools. So we did a what I call a Caribbean takeover of James Gillespie's high school last year. So we have a musician from Jamaica. We have a dancer, a dance teacher can teach dance or dance. We have a, a Jamaican chef coming in to you know, teach cookery and teachers get to eat the food, so they're excited. But the important thing, of course, is then when I was doing poetry that day, but I'm using black history, Edinburgh's black history, particularly as some prompts for the children to well, say children, but young people to to use as a creative response to, to that kind of history. But I'm also bringing in Caribbean poetic responses to this history as well to make sure that people realize that the eyes of the world is also on Scotland. Internationally, people are noticing what is happening and actually paying attention. And to even example, let's say in, in England, when the National Trust starts to bring out their report about looking at colonialism and slavery and how the National Trust in Trinidad were like, wow, this is fantastic because you have so many people also come from other places around the world, could be from Asia or Africa and the Caribbean, and they know this history and they're going into the museums and they're seeing their history omitted or they're seeing the effects of Scottish imperial exploits um, any reference or any empathy for what people have gone through so um, yeah it was really exciting to see that and see um, how that overlaps so for example also um, Jedda Pearl's poem on the Royal Mile and the fact that it's placed there on the Royal Mile and there's so much history around the Royal Mile and you can take it right back to um, and a young African boy who was baptized on the Royal Mile in the 1680s. And it's very close to the spot where the poem is. And there's so much history that's rooted around that area from centuries. And if you even think about the African people who were part of the Royal Court as well, you know, that's sort of in between those two areas where those African courtiers would have been in the early 16th century from the, the castle, either in the castle or in the palace or moving between around those areas. The other thing as well, as Wesley was talking about the impact of having this kind of um, public art and the kind of conversations that have been had that can come out of that, especially in a year where these themes have been heightened and a lot more people are getting involved in the conversations that we've been having for decades. But in fact, these conversations are happening. More and more people are listening. Um, and being in this year when you know, the streets are quiet and people are looking at their city in a different way and they're taking walks because nothing else to go and do and to be able to reflect on those kinds of histories and those kinds of stories is such a powerful, wonderful thing to have had there in the city for those months. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, um, yeah, responding to that, but also remembering that we've got a, a history of guerrilla art as well. If you want to, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying this is guerrilla art, but if we're thinking about public art like this that makes a really big statement and we think about people like Frederick Douglass coming here in the 1840s and getting together with the Edinburgh Ladies Emancipation Society and carving out in massive letters, send back the money into Salisbury Crags and creating a huge stir and people coming and seeing that and then there's conversations happening and social change happening because of these, these very... Um, dramatic artistic statements that are right in the centre of a, a city like Edinburgh. Yeah, incredible. And I think we're going to do our best to try to link as much as we can to some of the examples that you've just described there, because I think listeners would, would really benefit from seeing and being able to read the poems and see those visuals. 
I mean, I suppose one thing which um, strikes me about both the BLM murals and um, the history walks, in addition to the work that you've both done, is that in a way you're, you're kind of helping uh, white scholars understand something of their own history, but also something of their own um, contemporary society in a way in which comes with a burden, right? Because you take on that labor, that emotional labor, as well as maybe it's politically risky. You know, you take on the, the challenge of having to be um, deemed as a problem to, be, to do that work. How, how do you manage that? How do you negotiate it? Is it something that you're conscious of or do you just try to put it in the, to the back of your mind and, and move forward? Worthy, did you get much resistance to the BLM murals? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I can't see how to think how to answer this. Yes. So um, for the most part, people were very grateful for them. And in the same way, um, as Lisa has said, people have taken them as a starting point for a conversation. It's allowed um, Scottish black and brown people to be able to open a conversation through a creative piece of work that they stumble past with their friends, with their family internally. I think that that's been a really positive thing and lots of positive conversations have come from that. But we cannot walk away from the fact that they were also vandalized several times. They were um, bat on, they were taken down, you know, social media as social media always is you know, brought out this like horrible group of people who just felt they needed to attack um, this expression or the, the, even the, the, the concept of Black Lives Matter. So there was, there is a, whenever you bring an uncomfortable conversation into the sphere of the, of the public, there's an inherent amount of uh, that you have to prepare yourself for some form of backlash. And part of it, and part of why I did it, was for, for that reaction. I think one of my favourite moments of, of putting the artwork up is always the moment where people stop and go, what are you doing? And then after some time, they start having a conversation about the things that have been brought up through the artwork. And some of it was like really political and some of it was based in history and some of them was really like joyful and kind of like, there was so many different varies and variant conversations that came out. There was one that was like about the NHS and how that's propped up by immigrant labor. There was another one just about kind of like black culture and music and dance and how that is kind of the core of a lot of the things that we love. So there was lots of conversations happening within that, There's lots of nuances within that. But it is that moment where you stop in the public sphere and people talk to you and they open up in ways that they would never have. Nobody walks up to you and starts a conversation about race on a daily basis, but these were the moments that allowed people to do that. Uh, one of my favorite moments of vandalism, which is the weirdest statement to put in, <laughs> the weirdest thing to say in any one way, shape or form, was we had a, a piece at the Queen's Hall, which was vandalized, I think six or seven times. It really got somebody very upset. Uh, and it said, it took the phrase, all lives matter, and took the V away and made it all lies matter. And essentially the artist was saying that 
the all lives matter statement or brand for them is a lie because if it was true then the black lives matter would not be an issue to people black lives would matter and the fact that people use all lives matter as a retort for black lives matter means that that statement means that black lives don't matter in that way so it was a really powerful subtle way of doing it and it was vandalized six or seven times but the best thing that could possibly have happened was somebody came along and they put in the v for all lives matter and then somebody else came along and crossed out the all and put black and then somebody else came along and added a, and it was like this sort of national debate happening on the artwork and i was just like this is why this needs to happen and it just, every time they were vandalized, every time we get a negative response, it just showed how much more the conversation was needed and how much further we had to go. So it's part of a, it's not that it's not exhausting, it is. And many times it is, you know, you do have those moments where you go, really? There's a point where this woman came up to me and was like, oh, I heard that George Floyd was a wrong and, and I was just like, oh. Do we, do we, like, is this where we're at? But it, it means that the conversation still has to happen. And it does allow for people's minds to be changed. It allows even minds to be shifted a little bit. That's enough. And that's all you can hope for. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things in what you've just said are really striking because I mean, one of them is that point that Audre Lorde makes when she talks about a spectrum of silence. And silence can be a number of things. It can be just staying quiet or actually it can be um, not intervening when um, something's occurring. And, and the example that you've given is almost like a, a piece of dynamic art. You know, it's, it's live and it becomes a site of inscription for competing views about what is just and what is right and I love the fact that it was you know in real time your art was being embraced maybe not in the way in which an artist was kind of hoping or anticipating but public art becomes the site of a public debate. I think everything there's something about that I always say when I ever meet artists in, every, in any genre so I work in theatre, I work in music, I work in dance, I work in visual art so there's I always have a conversation with an artist whenever they create a piece that once it's given to the public, once it's out there, once you've presented it, then you have to step away from it and then it becomes, it, it belongs to whoever's viewing it because their perspective then is an added layer that you didn't intend as an artist. So that pulls it into a different direction that you might not even see. They might see things that you don't see. And that's what art does. It creates a, a very individual response and a very collective response in exactly the same, um, at exactly the same moment. And it, you have to, as an artist, allow the, the world to react back to what, what you've created and what comes back, you have no control over it. And it just, it's amazing that, that we can start a really deep and meaningful public debate from three words on a, on a designed poster. I mean, there's something in the, in the, meth, in the methodology of, of, of your work and the way in which you curate public art in a way in which I suppose Lisa is also really relevant to how effectively you're, you're teaching amongst other things, but kind of 
um, in amongst other people when you're doing the walking tours. I mean, when I teach in a classroom, nobody's going to knock on the door and say, actually, I don't overhear that and say, you know, I don't agree with that. Here's my view. Whereas you must have to contend with that all the time when people pass you by, interrupt, um, kind of, you know, get in the mix when you're trying to lead one of your walking tours. It's been interesting because most of the people that come, they're either reasonably like-minded or they are interested enough so they're open-minded, they just want to learn. Now, at the very beginning of the tours, regardless of who's there, I would normally say, look, this is going to be an emotional journey. Be prepared for different emotions coming up. Um, and lots of different ways, depending on how you're racialized, depending on your experience, depending on what you're interested in, what you don't know, many things. Um, be prepared for that, but also to know, and I make it's very clear at the beginning, as I make, you know, know that this is not to be divisive. This is truth telling for healing. Um, and this is the purpose of what I do. Now, occasionally I've had a few people, one of the main contentions that comes up is this often Scottish people will say, yes, but we were slaves as well. So what's the difference, right? This comes up all the time. And this comes up in community events, talks at museums, or they've been like, you know, top global scholars of slavery, um, and half the audience hands will go up and agree. So I spend quite a bit of time trying to explain why chattel slavery is different from other forms of slavery, for example, that people are categorized as property for the very first time and the legacies that come from that. Um, the other thing I do is try to differentiate it from indentured labor. And that's not to say, and I say this as well, so this is not to minimize Scottish suffering in this. This is not to minimize the suffering that came from land clearances and people forced into indenture and people dying from disease and all of those things that we know happen. But it's to differentiate the legacies that come from those two things that are really different. And the fact that your indentured labor is not hereditary. You are not considered property. You have human rights to an extent. So it's those things that I have to make clear so people understand the present legacy and why, how it's connected to the past. Um, so, for example, um, also talking about the construction of race and how so much of this came out of Edinburgh University. And it's not just David Hume's problematic footnote, but it's other philosophers as well. And how this construction of race was then becomes this power construct and how abstract it is. And that's one of the things that I do even when I'm speaking to teachers, I do a lot of training with teachers. And there, there is a lack of awareness about this construction, this false construction of, of race and where it's even come from. But I think if people are quick to understand that, they can deconstruct it and they can not walk around with this idea that, oh, we've always been, we're always biased and that's just human nature. And those kinds of ideas that what's the point bothering because everyone's always gonna be a bit racist. You know, these ridiculous ideas that I've even heard from professors in other universities saying, well, everyone's a bit racist. So. You know, and I'm like, hold up, we need to now talk about the difference between prejudice, discrimination, and I literally just go back to kind of one on one conversations. So very, I've had a few people come up and say things like, um, one man particularly said, I really worry about the slave owners, as he said, because they're not here to defend themselves. And I'm very, very concerned about it. So I had to spend a minute or two on the talk just sort of nipping that in the bud, addressing it in two minutes as, as well as I could. One of the things I'm really passionate about and get infuriated by very often, sometimes I will do a talk 
that will, you know, literally spent an hour explaining how multiracial working class movements were um, reasonably commonplace, where white working class people are very concerned about what's going on in the colonies, very concerned about enslaved people. Um, talking about the amount of freedom fighting that was happening on the continent, on the ships and across the Caribbean, a continuing war of resistance. I'll say, look, this idea of putting a present lens on the past is ridiculous because if you look at all of these instances where people were saying it was extremely wrong, depending on what influence you had, depending on what power you had. Um, I try to make that clear, but literally sometimes people just don't want to hear that. <laughs> Normally on the on the walks, not so, but in other talks I've done, there'll be one person at the end going, yes, but we mustn't put a present lens on the past after all of that. And I find that quite infuriating. Have you ever had people interrupt you who aren't on the talk they've overheard or they've just taken issue with your your literally your presence in the white space talking about a historical statue or figure? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And it's been it there was a couple of um a couple of situations earlier on this year that did unnerve me actually, because it was somebody's a well-known far right fascist leader who was coming around the, the, and trying to look threatening, walking up and down at the beginning of the tour, we're standing by the Melville Monument and the proposed new flat, and deliberately trying to make his presence known and, and threatened and walk up and down, and, you know, that kind of thing. So that there are those issues of security that I do, that concern me sometimes, mm. um, you know, that I wouldn't want to, you know, I think that there's certain things that you do you do have to have in place to make sure that if these things become more and more high profile and things are we're you know we're in a pretty toxic environment right now for a lot of different reasons that we do have to consider some of those things yeah. quite seriously as well. You know, um, but on the whole, I would say 99% of people that just say. I am absolutely shocked right now. I didn't know any of this, and you maybe I don't know a small percentage of this maybe I now have to go away and reevaluate everything that I think or know about Edinburgh and these are often people born and they've lived here their entire life they're in the 50s and 60s and they're the ones that are often the most kind of um shocked is the word that comes up very often in the, on the walks are there parts of the story in Edinburgh that you know of but that you won't talk to or speak to or lead a tour to there are difficult issues because if you really want to get the truth about the realities of enslavement, it's so the depths of evil and horror. And you can't go into all of those things on a two hour tour when people are walking around the city. And you don't want the talk to be all about that either. You know, it's not all about slavery and suffering and colonialism. Having said that, there is a certain dignity in making sure that people understand the, the dignity and the courage and the bravery of people who were freedom fighters within enslavement. So that in itself is important, but it's also the other story beyond all that as well. And it's really important that we make sure and have a balance. Obviously the built environment reflects that period the most. And right now that's what a lot of people are interested in, but we mustn't make it all about that. And we also have to be careful. I don't think I do it. I hope I don't do it. But there are instances where people almost, especially with white academics, I see this quite often, you will often see a kind of fetishization happening. 
and it isn't necessarily conscious it isn't necessarily probably isn't conscious at all actually but sometimes the language that people will use about this this period of history is quite upsetting to be in those settings the way that people are talking about it, either very casually or joke about things in a really inappropriate way that you would not joke about the Jewish Holocaust in that same way. So those are sometimes the things I find difficult. And also being able to address things, particularly the effect on women, and the fit, particularly the fact that women were forced into this forced reproductive system. And those, those kinds of areas are really difficult to talk about. And they, sometimes it's very, um, you know, you have to have a balance sometimes when you're researching this stuff very heavily and you're having to go through some really traumatic material and then have to relive it with people on a regular basis as well. So all of that stuff has to be balanced. But the good thing about the actual walks is that you, because you're actually walking, mm. you will maybe um, talk about a very emotional topic. You may not have to go into a massive detail, but you, you provide enough information to people to understand what you're trying to say. And then you will need to lighten it with something else. So you've got to be really aware of the group's emotions, the kinds of conversations that are coming up. Be very much in tune with what's happening with your group as you're moving around and make sure that you lighten it with another kind of story or you joke about something, but it's not in an inappropriate way because it's about something else. So that kind of emotional management of people is, is, is all part of this as well. Yeah, and I guess part part of the method of of the way in which you do your work that that is so kind of um, distinct to the kind of conventional way in which these stories might be approached within you know formal educational settings, which kind of creates a barrier almost to the world. Um, whereas you're in the space in the moment around things that that are perhaps been discussed in the in the classroom on a PowerPoint slide. I mean, one of the things that also features, I suppose, in, in what you've described, Lisa, and, I, and I'm thinking this about this especially in terms of your work, Wesley, is, is, is agency, and it's the agency of the people who are the objects of, uh, of racialization. Um, and I was struck by the number of artists um, in the murals that you cur curated who um, were um, depicting kind of the visceral character of race, you know, as literally something which is suffocating, um, preventing people from breathing, or is, is a weight that people bear. Um, and the kind of the agency that they then have to tell that story in their ways, which isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily conform to the way in which, you know, the news depicts that, or that's told by people who are who are speaking on the behalf of uh, of people of color people who are racialized uh, minorities is that something that that you think quite hard about in advance with your do you, do you just try to make sense of it kind of as, as work is produced i absolutely led with the idea of handing over um the the microphone the virtual microphone to various voices i'm very aware not to be seen as the voice of people of color or the voice of artists of color and the reason why i wanted to have 40 plus artists voices in this mural trail and like that's nationally across the country was i knew that the conversation that's happening in inverness is very different from the conversation that's happening in in Glasgow, or the conversation that's, that's happening um, in the media, especially, will portray 
especially the conversation around Black Lives Matter as a linear conversation. It's about the police or it's an anti-police something or it's something very, as a very linear conversation. But I was aware that within all of that, within all that is being talked around, around Black Lives, there's so many nuances and so many places where people feel passion and feel that they themselves have a have a um have an input or have an experience that they need to share so i was very careful to not heavy-handedly curate anything but to give that agency to the artist and what has resulted is a huge array of artists who are talking about everything from um, you know, music from the NHS from to police brutality to um, there's one beautiful one that was at the Lyceum that was literally just an homage to his mom, his grandma, uh, his great aunt and um, his grandmother. These three women whose society had completely ignored because they were black women, but were within their roles as kind of a teacher, as a nurturer, as a sort of healer. So as a nurse, as a mother, and as a teacher, they had shaped so many young individuals and shaped so many lives. But when they step out of that role, they were completely ignored. And it was just a beautiful homage to these three like matriarchs of his family. And I think that that's, for me, was what's important about giving voice giving agency is that that that's a space where you're allowed to have nuances of conversation you're allowed to have multiple viewpoints of the same conversation and you can have that and it can feel like a conversation because it's not just a for lack of a better word black and white you know issue that you know this is this and this is this there's lots of conversations that are happening within it's a wider context of Black Lives Matter within the wider context of the Black Scottish experience. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways in which I think both of you kind of disrupt these normative grammars of, of race insofar as people who look in might think that they have an understanding of what Scotland is. And when they see issues of race, race, they see it in very simple binary terms. But of course, the history of Scotland, indeed the history of the world, is much, much more complicated than that and often um, a very mixed story. So, so, where, so where do we go then from this moment in ways in which you've both kind of articulated? Um, where do we take um, the, the work that you're doing, but also the ideas that they've generated forward? Do, we, do you think we'll be back here in a cyclical way as we've been here before? It seems prompted by tragedy, lack of action. Um, we kind of get to this impasse and then we return to it in a number of years. Or do you think we're actually going to Going to go on a different kind of trajectory this time. 
I'm quietly hopeful, to be honest. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm quietly hopeful. I think that there's something about this, this sort of zeitgeist that has appeared where the pandemic has shone a really big light on the systems that don't work for a lot of people and the things that don't work. And there's, there's a danger that we will go back into sort of, uh, you know, a cycle of this is, you know, back to normal or n- normal for some people. But I think that there seems to be that moment where the pandemic has highlighted what things are important and what things don't work in terms of like systems and, and um, things that have been in place for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then there was a moment in lockdown where people did open their eyes and pay attention to the voices of the people who are marginalized. And it feels like that there is an opportunity for the first step. And it's not gonna be an easy journey, but there's an opportunity right now. And there, there's been that sort of like that zeitgeist, that sort of like cross, that meeting of the Venn diagram where everything just feels right for people to be like, oh, well that didn't work. Let's not build it the same way. Like when we're, re- when we're rethinking about how we're gonna move forward post COVID, let's not build that the same way. Let's look at what, what could possibly happen. And one of the things that makes me hopeful is that I have, I spend a lot of time, so I'm currently the, um, creative associate at National Theatre of Scotland and I'm working with Travis Theatre as well and there's something within the language that has shifted. In white colleagues there's something within the language that has shifted and there's even those moments where um, established um, people in my sector, established white colleagues in my sector are checking themselves, are checking themselves and are um, holding a mirror to what they do and what they should do and asking the question. And that's enough. That's the, the first step. To be able to say that, that things that have been standard and norm for decades and decades and decades, people are now instinctively checking themselves and going does that feel like we've done everything we need to do to make this space equitable and that's something i've never seen people think about in such a sort of um natural way in such a sort of as as part of a norm as part of a norm of programming yeah and lisa you're kind of nodding away at that observation I would agree in a lot of ways. Um, I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday, actually. Um, and also being friends with people a little bit older than me. I mean, I'm 50 and I've got friends that say in their 60s who, they say, grew up black in Birmingham and it was very normal for them to be walking to school with National Front um, graffiti all the way to school and being chased, you know, other friends a bit older, like being chased by a National Front on a regular basis. Um, so in some ways it's a mixed bag isn't it you you see the resistance out there you see a lot of resistance to the narrative being expanded um and that sort of toxic media social media presence which again is something i sort of navigate and i generally sort of 
try not to engage with people who are just there to have a fight and not there to learn but I totally want to engage with people who are open and willing to learn and you know like where as you said the language has changed and working with heritage organizations now compared to last year the kinds of conversations that I would try to bring up with people last year and meet a wall of silence absolute silence go on to the next thing literally just be ignored or people get quite defensive there's still a little bit of that that I come up against, but it's very, very different. So there's, for example, a blog that I wrote recently for the National Portrait Gallery, and I've been working with them for a couple of years. You know, I did my master's sort of based around one of their exhibitions and that kind of thing, looking at Scotland's role in empire, how that's curated. Um, but also that is a blog that I could have written last year, but it, it would not have gone through with everybody going, yeah, that's fine this year. No way, a year ago um the, again yeah the language that's being used is different i didn't expect edinburgh council to be talking about microaggressions in a meeting i had with them the other day like normal tripping off the tongue you know i was like okay it's interesting um things like um it's true people are reflective there's a lot of people who want to do better but they're not sure how and they want some guidance on it and they want to know yes if we want to learn ourselves we're not going to put it all on you but we will kind of want to know where's a good place to start without going down you know making sure you've got really um reading lists or sources that are credible that are useful and useful to them and particular scottish context as well because the scottish context is a bit peculiar and we know we've got people who um consider it to be colonized or semi-colonized and all the kinds of arguments that go around that but people's identity based in that kind of um viewpoint it can sometimes be a bit tricky but it can also be a really good opportunity for me the, the phrase that i've been using a lot recently is empathetic history so we've got this idea of difficult history one of the things i encourage people to do is to unpick what difficult means within each context at the time depending on who's in the conversation what a context is what you're talking about what does difficult mean in that space at that time what emotion does that evoke for you when you can pinpoint what that is maybe if that's a sense of guilt or complicity or um um and i'll get onto ideas of pride and shame in a moment but if you if we can really identify what those are we can have a very constructive conversation then know how to move forward but i think we need to have some sort of emotional what i call emotional scaffolding what other people call emotional scaffolding in place when we're having these kinds of tricky conversations or uncomfortable conversations in organizations as well now thinking i was thinking about also what you know where's his work being around that area around the theatres and how important that is and like you had said about the very white audiences and the people who are working there and those kinds of structures that we've got to keep on interrogating keep asking about well how many people got on your board and those sorts of things people in positions of power making sure that um that people are there now what was really striking when i went to barbershop chronicles uh last year and there was a talk or i can't remember when it was now i think it was last year um at the end there was a talk about black masculinity and ideas of black masculinity and one of the things that the um, panel did was get the audience was majority white middle class typical lyceum audience to write their first impression whatever came to mind first word association about a black man and they wrote it on bits of paper put it into a hat read it out on stage and although i know people have these biases and racist ideas and so on, i was still a bit shocked by it 
And I was thinking about my son, who's 17, who's now born in the Caribbean, but growing up Scottish, walking around Edinburgh with the ideas that were coming out of that hat. And it was literally things like dangerous, violent, vicious, thug. I was like, whoa, or, or maybe athlete, singer, Stormzy, Obama, that kind of thing. I think mine was freedom fighter <laughs> that came out of the hat. That was a bit of an anomaly in there. Um, but things like that, it, it did it did upset me actually at the time. I was kind of like, wow, my son's going to be walking around these streets as a young man, and you really do have these ideas in your head, you know. So, but I think the fact that that conversation was had, the fact that it was made anonymous, allowed people to be honest. And this is what I encourage when I'm having conversations with heritage organizations and saying, okay, we're not having a public conversation right now, but let's be honest about this. And then we can get to the, the, the core of what is wrong. But also I'm suggesting to people too, like, let's say for example, you bring in a black artist into a heritage organization and a couple of years ago and hearing horror stories about the kinds of stuff that might happen on social media if that person is then the person that's is who the person who's selected to speak out on uncomfortable topics so there's a bit of distance between them and the institution and then often they're getting the flat for speaking out and the fact that the organization i think it'd be very different now the organization at the time because they haven't had that experience themselves had not thought to put security measures in place to disable comments or to have emotional support for the person when these kinds of horrible um vicious attacks on social media happening. So I think this, this year, what it has done for so many white people across Scotland is waking up to the, the amount of racism in Scotland. Often people come and say, oh, I'm really shocked, I feel a bit embarrassed, I didn't really know, or you know, I just had no idea it was that bad and, and so on. But um, those kinds of people who are not actively working against this kind of work so many more people coming on board and actually wanting to be part of it and those kinds of conversations i i've never seen before in my lifetime in in britain or in scotland so what's next for you what's next for you both what do you have on the horizon how are you going to take forward some of the some of the work that you've been doing or new work that you've been planning was he um i think for me it's about interrogating how do we build on this momentum? So this core group of, of network of artists and how do we build on this momentum? How do we, how do I as an individual support? Because um, a number of the artists that uh, I, I showcased were first time, you know, that was the first time that they had any sort of exhibition up and um, need some kind of mentoring and training and actually need to be led into the industry and feel like they're part of the industry. Another big thing is for me is maybe turning around and knocking on the doors of these institutions and asking the questions of, you know, how are you programming? How are you, what is, what's on your walls? How, how are you deciding this? And, you know, genuinely making, trying to find a space for, a year-round space for artists of colour in various different genres. So for me, it's a little bit of a kind of turning around and knocking on the doors of these institutions and kind of being asked to, or demanding to be let in, in a way. So that's kind of one of my, my main things for next year. Um, one of the things that I want to do is involve young people. So 
Um, an exciting project that I really want to do next year is a citywide poetry competition for young people in schools looking at black history and using it as a, something for creative response, but also involving young people. Maybe Wesley and I can, can talk about this, I hope, at some point to collaborate with artists, you know, visual artists, but performance artists and, and, and bring these stories to life in a really exciting way. So it's something I've been thinking about for a while. I'm hoping this will start coming together next year. One of the things I also want to do is, um, is publish some resources. I've also been asked recently to publish some resources for schools as well. So how this is feeding into our curriculum. And there's so much talk at the moment about you know, decolonizing the curriculum as well, but making sure that um, you know, helping in the creation of responses that teachers can feel confident using in the classroom because that's something that comes up a lot you know they don't feel confident they don't know what to use but also we need to make sure that our teachers are trained well to deliver this stuff sensitively and that's a whole other area too um but lots of exciting things in the pipeline can't talk about all of them right now so i'm a bit secret but there's some really exciting things coming out of this and for me international collaboration is really exciting as well because you know um so many people looking at Scotland, so many people excited that Scotland's looking at their past in a, in a more of a, a clear-eyed way, more mature, more nuanced kind of way. And having those conversations with, could be young people, could be older people, could be all kinds of people, but also creating those connections with, with folks here who might want to have those conversations with people abroad as well. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, that's so, uh, so exciting to hear about and, and to think through some of the things that, that you're both planning on and, and and, uh, and ways to take those forward. Uh, can I just thank you? It's been such a privilege to speak to you both, Lisa, Wesley, uh, for your time, for participating in, in Undersong and uh, for sharing with us the work that you've done and, and the work that you do. Um, we'll draw this to a close and we'll be back soon with our, with our next episode of, of Undersong. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.